It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, and watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV Plus. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Since the invasion by Russia, about three million Ukrainians have fled their country. The vast majority to European Union countries, which allow them to travel visa-free. President Biden praised the Irish prime minister this week for his country's welcome to Ukrainians. What Ireland is doing now, what you are doing, Taking in Ukrainian refugees speaks so loudly about your principles. And it's amazing. And I, I want to publicly compliment you for it. But what about the Ukrainians who want to come to the United States to join family here? The Biden administration has done nothing to help those refugees get into the country, a process that's far from easy. My guest is Leon Fresco, a partner at Holland and Knight and a former immigration official in the Obama administration. So, Leon, are many Ukrainians trying to get into the country? Many Ukrainians are trying to get into the United States. I'm getting calls in my law office. You know, I'm a private attorney when I'm not on Bloomberg. (laughs) I'm getting calls all the time from people all over our country. You'd be shocked how many people seem to have connections to people in Ukraine. And they all want to figure out what can be done. And so what's complicated is there are some well-meaning pieces of information that are not exactly accurate. So you'll hear it. Oh, the United States is letting in Ukrainian refugees as we speak. But those Ukrainian refugees are people that have been vetted for many years who were refugees from the Russian annexation of Crimea. So they're not people who are refugees from last week. They're people who were refugees from many years ago. And so the problem with saying we will welcome refugees is that refugee process could take a year or two years. And then the question is, we don't know what the state of affairs in Ukraine will be at that point. Maybe there will be no refugee issue in Ukraine a year or two from now. And so the question is, what, if anything, the Biden administration can do now? And so here is where you have a doctrinal issue versus sort of what I would call a compassion issue, which is plenty of people are seeking to come here on student visas now, on visitor visas, humanitarian parole applications. And it's just going to come down to whether the Biden administration provides guidance saying that that's okay, 
to let people come here and stay during the duration of the crisis, essentially, knowing that hopefully some large segment of those individuals would go back if the war were to subside? Or are they going to take a more doctrinal, dogmatic approach and say, look, you can't come on a visitor visa if you're from Ukraine because we have no evidence you're going to come back. We can't give you a student visa if you're from Ukraine because we have no evidence you're going to come back, etc. The more of those pathways that they cut off, the harder it's going to be. And what you'll see, and you're starting to see smatterings of this, is actually Ukrainians appearing on the southern border and just applying for asylum on the southern border. And if that's the only way you're going to let Ukrainians in, that's the way that Ukrainians are going to use if, and I repeat, if they have an American family member that's arranging this for them. And that's usually what you would see is the American family member would say, "Okay, fly to Mexico and then we'll work it so that you can apply for asylum at the port of entry between the United States and Mexico. Let's say someone calls you up and says, my family's in Ukraine now, or went from Ukraine to Poland. I want to get them into this country. Besides flying to Mexico, what else can you do? Well, the most compelling legal option in terms of what you would do doctrinally is something called humanitarian parole. And you would ask them to put together a package that you would assist them making with their information and why they can't stay where they are and why, as a humanitarian nature, the United States should give them a one-year parole to sort of weather the storm here, and then after that one year, they can leave. And showing that they have sufficient family ties here, that they have an economic sponsor here who can take care of them while they're here, which would usually be some very close family member with a pretty decent income, and you would let the chips fall where they may. We're at the beginning stages of this process, USCIS endeavors to give decisions in 90 days on these parole applications. So we'll know in a few weeks whether USCIS is treating these claims compassionately or not. And quite frankly, the state of affairs may be completely different in the next few weeks than it is right now. So we don't know. A lot of this is going to be wait and see, but that's the main way. And the USCIS being the United States Citizenship and Immigration Services. Leon, what about getting in with a student visa or a tourist visa? People can come in very quickly if they can get admitted into a university, but you'd have to find some open embassy of ours. It would either be our embassy in Poland, our embassy in Moldova, our embassy in Romania, or if you could even get further west, you know, Germany or wherever you could get to in order to get yourself an appointment for a student visa. But in that situation... You're going to need an adjudicator who's going to not take so seriously the fact that you're from Ukraine and might not be able to return because one of the criteria for a student visa is you have to be a person who can show that you would leave the United States after your studies are over. And so the question is, are they going to say that Ukrainians as a de facto matter aren't going to return? So those are the questions that are being wrestled with. And then a lot of people want to just come on visitor visas which would give you six months in the United States. But there's two problems there. One, the embassies all over the world have about two-year wait time for visitor visa applications because of COVID. But even if you could get yourself in for a visitor visa appointment, will the embassy say, you're not going to truly visit? You're going to say, you're never going back, so we're not going to give you a visitor visa. 
And so that's the challenge with the visitor visa and the student visa. The Biden administration has given Ukrainians who are already here temporary protected status, right? Right. But you can't come here now and get temporary protected status. But for the people who are already here on the first day of the commencement of the hostilities in Ukraine, those individuals can stay now until that temporary protected status is one day taken away. And I don't know if and when that would ever happen. But for the moment, those people, even if their visa has expired, can take advantage of this temporary protected status in order to remain here and work lawfully in the United States. And so bottom line is the Biden administration hasn't done anything so far to open our country's doors to Ukrainian refugees. Correct. There's been no policy change that has said how it would be easier for a Ukrainian to access the United States. They haven't said, hey, apply for humanitarian parole if you have a U.S. citizen, spouse, parent, child, or sibling, you know, as an example, and we'll give a one-year humanitarian parole. They haven't issued a memo like that. They haven't issued a memo that says, here's how you can access the refugee program if you're in Poland or in Moldova or Romania. They haven't done anything like that. So everybody's just trying to figure out a way to kind of go through this Rube Goldberg device that is our immigration system to get their body into the U.S. The problem that happens with all of these issues is if you don't take the trouble to plan something out and issue something, then what you will inevitably see with some number of people is, well, then I'm just going to take the most direct route I'm appearing at the southern border, and I'm making an asylum claim. Leon, I want to turn to another immigration topic now. Migrants have been expelled more than 1.6 million times under Title 42, which was introduced in March of 2020 to prevent the spread of COVID-19. However, the Biden administration now says unaccompanied migrant children trying to enter the United States will not be denied a chance to seek asylum. The same is not true for adults and families traveling with children. Joining me is Leon Fresco, a partner at Holland and Knight. Just review what the broader policy has been since 2020, known as Title 42. Well, at the same time that the COVID national emergency was declared and the Trump administration was the administration that was in power at the time of the COVID national emergency, The administration also decided to, at the same time, have two different kinds of health-related travel bans. The first kind of health-related travel bans were the very similar types of travel bans that had been put into place because of the, uh, the Middle Eastern countries and things of that nature. And that was the travel ban authority under INA Section 212F. But then secondly... The administration needed to put a travel ban on the border because the INA Section 212F travel ban only covered entries from foreign countries in terms of legal immigration. They needed to do something that would permit them to expel even asylum seekers from the United States. And so that's something called Title 42 authority under the U.S. Code. And that's in the public health section of the code. It's actually not in the immigration section of the code. And what that says is that during an emergency involving a communicable disease, the CDC director can instruct the Department of Homeland Security to exclude any foreign nationals trying to enter the United States. 
And so that's been the state of affairs since March of 2020 till this day. Leon, why did the CDC come out with this new guidance for migrant children traveling alone? Well, there's been litigation in the D.C. Circuit, and this litigation actually, in this regard, for unaccompanied children, actually didn't change much practically on the ground. The D.C. Circuit litigation is called Weisha Weisha versus Mallorcas, and it's trying to upend all of the uses of Title 42 for everyone at the southern border. But they did not get a victory in the D.C. Circuit fully, but what they did get is this understanding that for unaccompanied children, there's a separate statutory regime that's in place for what happens when an unaccompanied child reaches the border. And that statutory regime is that they have to go to the Department of Health and Human Services, they have to get inspected, they get shots if they don't have the shots, they then get put into the custody of either a shelter or of an adult in the United States who can take custody of that child and then they're put in removal proceedings while they're in that person's custody. And sometimes they can win their proceedings, sometimes they don't win. And so the idea was you could not operate Title 42 on those unaccompanied children because the Congress had said very clearly what it wanted to be done, and Title 42 didn't supersede those statutory provisions with regard to what's needed for unaccompanied children. So then why the CDC announcement? Well, the CDC then solidified the guidance from the court, which is to say, fine, you don't need to give us an injunction. We're not going to do this. So we can moot out this part of the case by letting you know that we are not going to put unaccompanied children into Title 42 expulsion. But quite frankly, the administration wasn't doing that because it's very hard. What are you going to do with a 17-year-old? or 16-year-old, or even, God forbid, if they're much younger children, if you use this Title 42 authority, then you're just expelling them into the middle of Mexico, and they have no place to go, no provisions, none of that. And so as a practical matter, this was only being done in the rarest of cases. But nevertheless, now it's not going to be done at all pursuant to this memo. Now, you were talking about a case in the D.C. Circuit in March of 2020, there's a conflicting case in Texas just recently. Tell us about that. So in March 4th of 2022, the District Court for the Northern District of Texas issued a preliminary injunction enjoining the CDC from using the Title 42 expulsion authority against unaccompanied children. And their, their decision was that they hadn't adequately explained why they would treat unaccompanied children differently than other people under the CDC order. And so that decision was made, and then it was up to the CDC to decide what were they going to do. Were they going to challenge that in appeal, or were they just going to try to moot out the injunction? And so what the CDC decided to do, in conjunction with the Department of Homeland Security, is to say, look, this is such a rare thing that we're using this Title 42 authority for unaccompanied children, we're just going to make a public health reassessment and say we're not going to be using this Title 42 authority to expel unaccompanied children from the United States. But they're still going to use Title 42 to expel migrant adults and families with children. 
Correct. So for migrant adults, that's the simplest case, which is that the courts have held still so far that you can use this authority for cases involving adults because adults don't pose any issues with regard to children being present. The, the trickier issue is this litigation as it's going to proceed and what's going to happen with families, meaning adults and children that travel together. And so far, the courts have said that that can be used for families because, again, this becomes the same problem as the problem we face with regard to detaining families, which is that when the court said you couldn't detain families, then that led to a very tricky situation where you had to decide whether to separate families or let them all in. And so the courts don't want to get involved with that so far under Title 42. And what they are instead doing is saying that you can exclude still entire families under Title 42. So now is this complicated because the D.C. appellate court said last week that officials couldn't expel families to places where they could be persecuted or harmed? So Correct. So, so this is, again, another one of those decisions that's an interesting decision but is not a deviation from the practical authority. And so what, is the, what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is the Department of Homeland Security, at least under the Biden administration, not so much under the Trump administration, but under the Biden administration, was already issuing credible fear determinations to try to figure out if it was going to expel someone to a country that they were going to fear persecution from. As a practical matter, 95% of these expulsions are going to be to Mexico. The only time they wouldn't be to Mexico would be if someone was coming on a flight and for some reason they were going to be expelled under Title 42, which would be very, 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 very rare. Or if there was some very quick ability to expel someone after very brief detention back to a Central American country, but that's very, very rare. And so the real question that's being asked is, do you fear persecution in Mexico? And only a very small number of people are going to actually be able to articulate claims of why they fear persecution in Mexico. But nevertheless, what the court has said is, if someone is going to say and credibly show that they fear persecution in Mexico, then you cannot use Title 42 authority to expel them to Mexico. And again, this is the same theory as the kids, which is that there's a statutory framework in the statutes for what we're supposed to do with people that fear persecution. And Title 42, again, does not supersede that framework. So if someone comes from Mexico and says, I fear persecution, they'll have to be given an asylum hearing? No, what they're given is a credible fear screening. And that's a very brief screening by an employee of the Department of Homeland Security where they're at. I understand, let's say you're from Central America. Here's my question to you. Do you fear that you will be harmed in Mexico on the basis of your race, religion, national origin, political opinion, or social group? And if they say no, then they can be expelled into Mexico. But if they say yes, then they'll be asked, why do you fear you'll be persecuted in Mexico? And only if they have a credible answer to that can they evade the Title 42 authority. Now, 
That doesn't mean that the Biden administration applies Title 42 to everyone. It actually doesn't. It's very sort of hodgepodge in that on any given day, you may see one family get applied, another one doesn't get applied. Some adults get it applied, other adults don't get it applied. There's no rhyme or reason to it a lot of times. But just the sheer numbers of how many people are getting Title 42 applied to them is why this continues to be an issue. Immigration advocates are saying that it isn't about COVID. The Biden administration is just using this as a way to curtail immigration. Well, the question is, at what point does that become true? Because that will certainly be true at some point. If there is very little concern about COVID, there, there are no restrictions anywhere else in the United States but for the southern border. At that point, that argument is 100% ironclad. In the world we lived in, let's say, two months ago, we were in a very huge state of panic and concern over the Omicron variant. That argument was not very strong. And so the question is, when do you get to a point where the courts can actually say that the justification for Title 42 is now so flimsy that you're only doing it as a way to evade the immigration code. And I don't know when we'll be there, but I think the best proxy will be, hey, when there's international travel that's taking place where people don't have to do anything related to COVID, at that point, you can't have Title 42 anymore. That's Leon Fresco, a partner at Holland and Knight. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. 
Billionaire Leon Black, the co-founder of Apollo Global Management, sued Gazelle Ganieva and her lawyers last year, claiming they violated civil racketeering laws by conspiring to destroy him personally and professionally. This was after Ganieva had sued Black for defamation, intentional infliction of emotional distress, gender-motivated violence, and retaliation. At a federal court hearing, none of the seven lawyers present gave the judge an indication that there was a prospect for settling the case. Joining me is Bloomberg legal reporter Bob Van Voris. Bob, tell us about these dueling lawsuits. Sure. Ganieva, uh, who is a former uh, model and a former girlfriend of Leon Black, claims that he raped her and that he defamed her in the press. She's suing over in state court. He has countered by filing a suit in federal court claiming violations of federal racketeering law. Basically, he's claiming that Ganieva conspired with PR representatives and uh, used her lawyers to defame him and to try to ruin his life and his reputation. He claims that the suit is basically concocted by Josh Harris, the person who co-founded Apollo Global with Black, in response to being passed over for the role of CEO after him. This is basically uh, an internal coup within Apollo, claims Leon Black, and that the entire thing was orchestrated by Josh Harris. The federal case is a defamation lawsuit based on RICO allegations? The federal case is uh, a RICO, a racketeering suit, claiming that people conspired to violate federal laws to try to ruin Black's life and to to defame him in the press. Is that an unusual claim for a private citizen to be making? Well, it's difficult to make civil claims under the RICO Act. There are a whole lot of legal hoops that you have to jump through. The people on the other side of the suit, uh, Rubenstein, the PR agency, and Josh Harris claim that this complaint comes nowhere close to stating the the things that they have to state to be able to recover against them. So they are moving to dismiss the suit. A judge the other day ruled in favor of Black, Black has said that Ganieva, he gave her millions of dollars in exchange for her agreement not to talk about their relationship. Is that involved in any of this? Yeah, that's one of the claims in the state court lawsuit that uh, basically she violated this uh, contract. He paid her and uh, she took the money and and is out there talking dirt about him. And and he claims that, um, you know, he ought to to recover for that as well. So now, why were there seven attorneys in the hearing in federal court? There were a couple each representing Black uh, and Ganieva. There were others in representing the other parties in the lawsuits, including Josh Harris and the PR agency. At one point, the judge asked if there was any prospect of settlement uh, anytime soon. And he said, you know, if you've got an answer other than slim to none, raise your hand. Everyone sat there stone still and uh, no hands were raised. Black's lawyer filed a letter with the judge claiming that her team had received WhatsApp messages between Ganieva and a New York Times reporter showing that she was working with her lawyer months before Ganieva officially retained him. What does that have to do with anything? 
Well, it's it's hard to figure out exactly what that has to do anything. It's not uh, all that unusual to be talking to lawyers before you formally retain them. Um, but the other side is saying, the black side is saying, hey, look, uh, you know, these um, lawyers claimed in papers that uh, made a big deal out of being retained at a certain point, but it turns out uh, they appear to have been talking to Ganieva months before that. So if you believe the allegation that there's a conspiracy, the conspiracy goes back further than, you know, than we knew, and, and here's some evidence of it. One of Ganieva's lawyers said, for now, Black's billions have bought him access to our court system in a way that most people do not have. What was she referring to? I think she was referring to the suit itself, that she, he has high-priced lawyers pursuing Ganieva in this suit that they claim has absolutely no uh, basis to be in court, and that ought to be dismissed. What's the next step here? The next step, the uh, judge in the federal case is going to hear motions to dismiss. Uh, They've got to file briefs on that, and the judge will hear arguments and decide whether that case belongs in court at all. The state case is on a separate track. That will go forward with discovery, and presumably that will at some point also come to motions where the defendants try to, you know, get the case kicked out. Thanks, Bob. That's Bob Van Voris, Bloomberg Legal Reporter. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for the Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash Future Investor slash Radio. 